Well, good evening. Welcome to Wednesday night community. Um, just as a reminder, I think this is in the, uh, the, the notes for the bulletin, but next Wednesday is our last Wednesday night for the semester. Um, the, the week after is Holy Week, so would invite you just as a reminder to uh, attend our Good Friday service um, at 6.30, I think, and uh, uh, it'll be in the main auditorium, but yeah. Um, so tonight... Um, let me do this actually first. I, I've, I've had a number, a number of really good questions submitted uh, during this series that has, has been really helpful. Um, one of the questions that I've gotten several times is, if you remember week one, we talked about this idea of divine plurality when it comes to the you know, Elohim, and there's many Elohim, uh, but no, Elohim is Yahweh. He's distinct. He's unique. And I've had a number of people say, now, th this sounds like Mormonism. Like, you know, I did a series a few years back on the LDS faith, and this, this is very, very different from that. Within Mormonism, you have the idea that all Elohim, well, they don't say Elohim, they, all divine beings are all equal, they're all the same, and you, you, can, you yourself can progress into uh, a divine being, a god. But, but there's, there's nothing unique or, or distinct about our god, you know, he used to be a man, according to the LDS faith. So he also grew. So this is very, very different than that. Um, it might even come to mind a little bit based on what we're going to talk about tonight, the angel of the Lord. Um, is this supporting the Jehovah's Witness belief about Jesus? The, the Jehovah's Witnesses would view Jesus as Michael the archangel. So he was, in the Old Testament, he was an angel. New Testament, he becomes a man, he dies, and he just becomes an angel again within Jehovah's Witness theology. So again, very different from what we're talking about here. But that's, that's been a question that has come up a number of times. So tonight we're going to look at, um, we're going to go through a ton of scripture, a lot of Old Testament scripture, building to sort of a profile of who the, the Messiah would be what he would do, and we've talked a little bit about that, but we're going to go into um, some, some elements that, um, here's, here's the payoff of tonight. Um, oftentimes, you will hear uh, books, uh, there's guys like Bart Ehrman, if you know that name. Um, he's a critical New Testament scholar, not a friend of uh, Christians, <laughs> and um, for instance, he wrote one book called um, How Jesus Became God. And his whole thesis is the concept of who Jesus was, this, this divine being, the Son of God, it's, it's totally foreign from the Old Testament. It, it has nothing to do, like you, it's sort of like the New Testament writers were just sort of being creative. And they were just riffing on, hey, let's, let's write some new stuff that, that's totally foreign to our Hebrew scriptures. And, and that's basically his, his thesis, is that these early followers of Jesus kind of took sort of some pagan ideas or whatever about this Jewish teacher from Galilee and sort of made him divine. And that's kind of what's going on there. So one of the payoffs of what we're going to look at tonight it has an apologetic bent to it. Apologetics is the idea of giving an answer for the faith that we have. Um, so th there's sort of a, a payoff there as well, and even a little bit of a payoff, I would suggest, for Jewish evangelism. Um, one of the biggest uh, obstacles for someone who is of the Jewish faith to consider Jesus 
is they think, well, for me to do that, I have to throw away monotheism, the idea that there's one unique God. In fact, let me go to um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is, this is the Hebrew Shema. Shema, it, just, it, it, it comes from the first word in Hebrew, which is listen, which in Hebrew, that's Shema. And so it says this, hear or listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, that's, that's the divine name there, Yahweh. Remember when you see all small caps, that's the divine name, what they call the uh, tetragrammaton, the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our Elohim, our God, Yahweh is one, or Yahweh alone. And then, of course, the uh, goes on, you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your, your might. The Hebrew Shema, if there's a creed to the Jewish faith, it's Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the Hebrew Shema. It's so core and fundamental. And so in what we look at tonight, this is a way to show that a person can worship Jesus and they're still a monotheist. Okay, so that's, that's kind of where we're leading and where we're going with a number of this. Um, you have some notes in your... Uh, well, each week I've just kind of been giving some helpful vocabulary because these will be some of the things that I'm referring to. And the first thing I want to look at, there's something in the Old Testament called the name theology. The name theology. And let me kind of show you what it is, and you'll, I think you'll start to see it. Um, we could go to a lot of different places. I'm just sort of cherry-picking a few that I like. We read this. Um, May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, he doesn't mean, may those four consonants, you know, YHW, may those consonants protect you. He's saying, may God May Yahweh protect you. But oftentimes, they will just sub in and say the name. In Hebrew, if you, if you know someone who's Orthodox Jew, oftentimes when they read their Hebrew Bible and they get to the name Yahweh, they, they substitute another name. They'll say Hashem, which just means the name, okay? Because they're, they're, they're wanting to protect um, God's holiness by, by not saying. That wasn't always done in Jewish um, life, but it is done oftentimes today. So this idea of the name, let me go to a couple other places here as well. Um, 2 Samuel 6, I've got to type these in because it was crashing on me when I had too many windows open earlier today. This is, <clears throat> David is gathering all the um, men of Israel and he has the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant is where God's presence is, okay? Notice what the author names the Ark. He says this, uh, bring up the Ark of God, which is called the name of Yahweh of hosts. So because his presence is there, it's appropriate to call the Ark, oh, that's the name of God. Are you with me? So you're kind of picking up this idea that to refer to the name doesn't literally mean letters. <laughs> it's referring to the being. Let me just give you one more here as well. 
um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30. I'm going to try to do better of saying the passages because I've had a couple people listen online. They say, you don't say the verses, you just go to them. Um, Isaiah 30, 27. Behold, the name of Yahweh comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury. He's, he's coming to Egypt. This, this is a, a judgment passage. And what it's saying is God's name is coming to Egypt and ooh, they're in trouble. Okay? So the name, again, are you seeing? It simply means God, the presence of God. Hashem, the name, is God. Okay? So now here's where this gets interesting. You might think, was this just like a language uh, teaching here? No. It has to do with how we read our Old Testament when we read certain things. Now, this is interesting. This is talking about when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, right? You know that, the Exodus. This is what we read. Listen to this. God says this to the people. Behold, so they're, they're out. They're going to be taken to the promised land. He's given them the law. Uh, they stay at Mount Sinai for about a year, receive the law. Then they're going to st start on their journey. And we read this. Behold, I send an angel before you. Did you ever see that before? I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Listen, pay careful attention and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. And of course, the question is oftentimes asked, remember in the New Testament when Jesus pardons someone's uh, sins, and the appropriate response is, well, who can forgive sins but God? Yeah, exactly. So who is this? My name, it's in him. That's weird. What does that mean? Well, if you have a, this name theology, so this angel, God's in the angel, and he's going to forgive or not forgive, not pardon your, your sins. And I think it's a little, is it later on here? Is, it, is that a different passage? Maybe that's a different one. Um, let me go to another one, Deuteronomy 4.35. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, we read this. Close that out. Um, okay, so who was it that led uh, is Israel to the promised land? The angel, right? The angel of the Lord is, okay. Now look at this passage here. He says, to show you that um, you might know that Yahweh is God, and there is none besides him. Out of heaven, uh, he let you hear his voice. Uh, go on down to verse 37. Because he, he is Yahweh, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and he, Yahweh, brought you out of Egypt with his own presence. Well, wait a minute, was it the angel who let him out? Here it's saying it was Yahweh's presence that led them out. Um, let me go to another one here. Um, Judges chapter 2, um, this is after they settle on the land, they're, um, <clears throat> they're, they're not obedient, okay? The angel of the Lord has, has physically, with his presence, been with them, okay? 
This is the time of the judges, but this is what we read. Now the angel of Yahweh went from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant. Wait a minute. Who made the covenant with Israel? Is it Yahweh or is it the angel of the Lord? The answer is yes. <laughs> and then he uh, goes on. I think it's in this one. Um, here we go. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's used interchangeably. There's the angel of the Lord, and then there's Yahweh. They are interchangeable. They're, they're different because we see them both present at different times. Um, let me go to uh, Genesis 31.10. So this is the passage where um, uh, Jacob is living with his father-in-law, and his father-in-law is kind of taking advantage of him and kind of tricking him, and they're both kind of deceitful to each other. They're kind of rotten people. And um, we read this passage here in Genesis 31. I'll start in verse 11. It says, The angel of God, the angel of the Lord, said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks uh, are striped, spotted, modded, for I have seen what Laban is doing to you. Look at this. I am the God of Bethel. The angel of the Lord just said, I'm the God of Bethel. So we're kind of you know, wondering, like, what, what, what is this? Who, you know, can he not make up his mind who he is? Is he? No. Um, this is one of my favorite ones here, Genesis 48, 14. This is the famous passage where Jacob is old man, he's dying, and he's going to bless his kids. Remember the arm crossing thing? So his son Joseph has, has two kids, um, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so he's going to bless Joseph by blessing his kids. And he's supposed to put his right hand on the old boy, oldest boy, and his left hand on the younger boy. But instead, he goes like this. And they go, oh, you got it mixed up. And he goes, no, I don't. <laughs> and so he's blessing. So <clears throat> listen, to, listen to his blessing. It's a stanza with three lines, okay, that says this. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. There's another stanza. Guess what it's going to start with? The angel, oh, that's not expected. The God who did this, the God who did this, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, and then he uses the singular verb, bless. So it can't be, it can't be may they do it, because it's may he bless, he uses the singular verb. So he's, he's conflating, he's saying, God, the angel of the Lord, yes, may he bless these kids. Um, let me go to one other passage in Judges. Um, Judges chapter 6, verse 11. <clears throat> this is where uh, Gideon gets called. You maybe have heard that story where uh, God comes and says, oh, mighty man of value. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm from like the smallest clan, the least, you know, 
smallest family. Why are you picking me? And we read this. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophir, which belonged, uh, let's see, we're going, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So he's physically appearing to him there. Um, and he says, um, I'm going to go down just to skip this. Uh, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And Yahweh turned turned to him. Isn't that interesting? Yahweh turned to him. So the angel of the Lord is there. Yahweh is there. Go in this your might of yours and save Israel from Midian. Do I not send you? Go down to verse 19. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat. Um, he, he basically wants to make an offering uh, to him. So he says he brought it to him the angel of the Lord, and he took the meat and the unleavened cakes, put it on a rock, and the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat. So he was giving an offering to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord vanished. Okay, He's no longer physically there. Then Gideon perceived, oh my goodness, that was the angel of the Lord. <laughs> um, and I saw him face to face. But Yahweh said to him, oh, Yahweh's still there. Angel of the Lord's gone, Yahweh's still there. And the Lord said to him, peace be you, do not fear, you're not going to die. Why would he be worried that he would die? Because he saw the face of the angel of the Lord. Well, you you're only said that you can die if you see God's face. So Gideon thinks, I've seen the angel of the Lord and I didn't die. It's an absolute miracle. Okay. Let me go to one other section that, again, we're kind of building a profile, okay? This concept of the name, Hashem, it means the presence of God. That name is in the angel of the Lord, and so they can be spoken of almost interchangeably in some way. There's one other piece. Again, we're building toward the New Testament. We're building toward the person of Jesus. There's something... And this will probably make you start thinking of some uh, New Testament passages. Something that's referred to oftentimes in the Old Testament, again, I'm just showing you a couple, is the, the word of the Lord not being just something verbal, but actually being a person. Uh, listen to, this is um, God's covenant with Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a this is key, vision. That means he saw something. This is not a voice in his head. He is seeing something. That's hence a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, your reward. Your very, uh, reward shall be very great. This is the blessings. Um, your offspring will be as many as the sand of the sea, the dirt. There will be so many of them. Um, you know the passage where in 1 Samuel, when Samuel's a little boy and he's living with Eli in whatever the uh, tabernacle complex is like there, <clears throat> and he has this experience 
1 Samuel chapter 3, where he's laying in bed. We know this story, right? He hears his name. He thinks it's Eli. He gets up multiple times and goes in to see Eli. And Eli finally clues in. And he's like, oh, I think this is God. Next time he says something, say, here I, am, here I am, Lord, your servant. I am listening. Speak. So we read this. Now the boy was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. It didn't mean there weren't enough Bibles. (laughs) The word of the Lord was rare. There weren't visions of the word of the Lord. And so um, we read this again later. Verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed. It means showed to him. So he has this experience. He finally says, okay, your servant is listening, and we read in verse 10, then Yahweh came and stood. How would you know he's standing if he doesn't have a body? You wouldn't. This is an embodiment of Yahweh, a visible Yahweh coming to him, standing before him. Uh, let me give you the passage where Jeremiah was called the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read this. The words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of this king, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to all the nations. And I said, oh, Lord, you know, I I can't speak. Um, And he says, you know, don't say that you're just a youth. Then, now this is the word of the Lord, put out his hand, he's got a hand, and touched, this is now a tactile experience, this is not even just sort of a vision, he's actually being touched by the word of the Lord, okay? So we're kind of starting to see how this is building. So this is what's called the two powers in heaven. In, in Jewish theology, up until about the second century A.D., there was this idea that there's two powers in heaven. There's, there's the invisible Yahweh, who's maybe ineffable, he's, he, he's, and, and, and then there's the visible Yahweh who comes in bodily form. He is here, these two Yahwehs. And um, in fact, Michael Heiser, he points out there's a, there's a book by a, a Jewish scholar, not a Christian, called The Two Powers in Heaven. And uh, he, he was a scholar in um, Jewish studies. He passed away about a decade ago. But he realized in, in his studies that the rabbis taught this, and he wanted to know, like, why did, it, why did they stop teaching it? Um, and so he went back and, you know, essentially when the, when the Christian church was kind of getting off the ground, it was doing evangelism, um, this theology kind of worked really well with this Jesus guy. He is now the visible Yahweh. He's embodied. We have, uh, we have uh, examples of that happening in the Old Testament. So it, it sort of worked in evangelism, Christian evangelism. And so the rabbi said, okay, this is now heresy. <laughs> We're not going to teach this sort of a, the concept of sort of a Godhead in the Old Testament. We're not going to do that any longer. Let me build one more angle of a profile that will help us get to Jesus. 
there's a phrase that's used five times in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 33, 26. <clears throat> um, the god Baal, um, he's the main Canaanite god, okay? Baal had a title uh, or, or, or a statement that was made about him called, uh, he was the cloud rider, okay? Baal is a fertility cult, meaning Baal brings the rain, okay? And, and, and he comes on the clouds. That, that was a classic Canaanite description for their god. And what the Hebrews did was they go, no, 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 Baal's not in charge of bringing the rain. Yahweh is. So they, they, they sort of took this, sort of to poke the Canaanites in the eye and say, Yahweh, he's the real cloud rider. And so five times in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament this phrase is used, one who comes on the clouds. So it's a, it's a well-known term for deity. Only you know, God can do that. Not a half God, not a partial. Only God can do that. And so we see some examples, Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is none like God, they're referring to Yahweh, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Let me show you the second place that we get this cloud rider thing. Psalm 68, uh, verse 32. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to Yahweh. To him who rides in the heavens. Okay, number two. Uh, third place is uh, Psalm 104. Verse 3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. There's the image again. Yahweh, he's the cloud rider. Isaiah 19, fourth one. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Okay? He's bringing judgment again here. The last place that it occurs and most Christians are a little more familiar with this one, is Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Okay? Now listen to this. As I looked, thrones were placed. Daniel's having a vision of what's going on in the unseen realm. Thrones, that's, that's multiple. Thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days, we all know who that is. This is Yahweh, right? The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, goes on to describe him in the typical kind of like Ezekiel style of, uh, you know, his majesty. It's, it's incomparable. The court sat in judgment. Books are opened. <clears throat> uh, and then we said this, I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Oh, here comes, here comes, wait a minute. The ancient of days is already there. The only one who rides on the clouds is Yahweh. And it says this, Behold, there came one like a son of man. That's a human. That's an embodied person. One like the son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this cloud rider, this human cloud rider, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations... Wait a minute, who's controlling the nations back then? The rebellious sons of God. So this is, this is referring to, there's going to be a great reversal. 
This one is going to take all the authority back from the rebellious sons of God who were put over the nations in Deuteronomy 32. That all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. Do you see the profile that's being built? There's, there's an invisible Yahweh, but then there's this also this visible Yahweh. And, um, you know, he is but isn't God. What's going on? He, he's, he's given all authority on the earth. Let me, let me give you one other one. This one's kind of a... I think this one even hints at the Trinity. Uh, Ezekiel... Eight. Ezekiel chapter 8. So he has this amazing vision, and, and listen to what, listen to the language that's used. It's very interesting. In the sixth year, sixth month, fifth day of the month, I sat in my house with the elders of Judas sitting before me. The hand of Yahweh God says, fell upon me. So he's going to have an experience with Yahweh God. Okay? Listen to how, listen to his experience of Yahweh God. I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire. This, this is classic divine language of, of things that are shiny and bright and that sort of thing to the Hebrews. Um, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand, so he's embodied, and took me by the lock of my head and... The Ruach, the Spirit, huh, lifted me up. That's, that's not the man, that's something different. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. And what he says, basically, the Spirit brought him to the uh, encounter God. Wait, what's the Spirit then? Because is the Spirit God? I mean, do you see how it's like... It's, it's intentionally confusing because this is one God, historic, classic, uh, orthodox theology, one God expressed in three distinct persons. That's historic, orthodox teaching. So when we get to, some of you are probably with a number of these passages, We go to the Gospel of John. You know how the Gospel of John starts? Yeah, we know this really well. <clears throat> He's not getting this from, from Greek philosophers. You will oftentimes read that even in commentaries. Oh, John's, John's trying to make a connection with the uh, Greek world of his day, and he's using Platonic notions of the Logos. No, he just knows his Old Testament really well. This is what he says. In the beginning was the Word. Remember that? The word of the Lord, it appeared. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Well, that's confusing. What do you mean? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. <clears throat> in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jump down to verse 14. I'll read 12 there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his what? His name. That's the name theology, right? 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. <clears throat> Verse 14, this is a great word here. And the word became flesh uh, and dwelt among us. The actual word there... Um, i got to pull it up. I can read it. Um, eskenosin. It means to tent, to, to tabernacle. John has in mind, Jesus is the tabernacle. He is where the presence of God, like, like where the ark was. <clears throat> that, that's, that's how he thought of it. Um, and so when we go to places like let me go to, um, or actually, I'll even go back here. This is uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Do you remember when Jesus is being tried? He's, he's before Caiaphas, the high priest, and they're saying, just tell us plainly, like, who are you? And it's, it's, it's not sinful to claim to be the Messiah. There were about half a dozen uh, supposed messiahs within 30, 40 years of Jesus' life. It, there's nothing sinful about that. There is something sinful about this, where when he's asked, Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. What's he referring to? Daniel 7, right? But that one is, this, that is that's the visible Yahweh. You can't claim it to be the visible Yahweh. That's, that's a completely different thing. But this is why when we have New Testament writers and they say things like this, this is where they're getting it. Um, Colossians 1.15 says this, he, he's the image of the invisible God. There's the visible Yahweh, there's the invisible. Jesus is the visible Yahweh, they're saying the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions. Remember setting that whole thing up, you know, when we talked about the second rebellion, um, or the third rebellion, rather. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Um, let me go to another one here. That What's so helpful about this is there are so many things in the Bible, in the New Testament, that have Old Testament antecedents that if we're not getting it, we just kind of tend to read over you know, things. This is why, I don't know if you remember, this was a, a while ago, we were doing a series, I don't remember what the series was, but I referenced there's a, there's a very popular, well-known Christian pastor and author, and in one of his most recent books, he said, for us to succeed in evangelism, we need to... Um, what was his phrase, un, un, unhook or detach the gospel from the Old Testament. And I just I wanted to tear my hair out. I'm like, that's horrible. Now, if he means we're not under the Old Covenant, yes, absolutely. But to neglect it is to neglect and miss so much of Jesus, of what's going on there. Let me go to um, John chapter 17. You know how many times Jesus says this? I have manifest or made known your name to the people who you have given to me. 
does that mean that they didn't know Yahweh's name? And he's like, hey, just so you know, it's, it's, it's Yahweh. No, I, they knew his name. So what's, what's the author talking about? He's saying, I have manifest, I have shown your name. Well, what's, what's God's name? It is his presence. That is him. He's saying, for me to make known your name, like, that's why Jesus said things like, if you've seen the Father, or rather, sorry, <laughs> if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's equating himself to Yahweh. He's making himself that second visible Yahweh figure. Let me give you one other one that is oftentimes kind of missed. This goes back to one of the things that we talked about earlier. Um, you ever wondered about this passage? So Jesus, um, this is when he calls Philip, I think, and Nathaniel. Um, and, you know, Nathaniel says, uh, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Because he said, I, I saw you sitting underneath the fig tree. And he's like, wow, that's amazing. And then he says this. Jesus has a weird thing here. He said to him, truly, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's no place in the Gospels where we ever see anything like that at all. What is the author doing? What's, he refer what's Jesus doing here? Does this language of angels ascending and descending, does that trigger anything in your head? You should be thinking of something. You know what it is? The ladder, Jacob's ladder, right? That's language that comes from Genesis 28. Remember where uh, Jacob has this, he, he lays down, he has a vision where he, he sees, it says a ladder or steps, and he saw angels ascending and descending. Now, what does he have in mind? Here's what, this is what he has in mind. If you remember, one of the weeks we talked about the ziggurats. Ziggurats are these, a part of a temple complex, and it was, the, it was the understanding that that's where you're going to meet with the deity, with the God. That's where he is going to come. That's where you're going to connect with him. So these ziggurats, these are places of divine presence. So think about what Jesus is claiming. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's he claiming? I'm a place of divine presence. And he's, he's essentially claiming to... You know what those temple complexes are? That's me. I contain the name. I am the visible Yahweh that you're interacting with. I am a temple. That's why John, in John 1.14, says he tabernacled. He, he became flesh. He, he was the very embodiment of God. So when we go, when we hear these statements that are made, like these New Testament writers, they're just making stuff up out of whole cloth, <laughs> No, there's deep Old Testament roots to who this Yahweh figure, who the Messiah would be, and what he would be like. He, Jesus is a place of divine presence. And that's beautiful. As we, read, as we read Scripture, I want it to come alive for us. I want us to make connections to things that maybe we've never connected, we've never seen but we've looked over them a thousand different times. And this lets us get into the, the mind, the shoes, whatever you might say, of how the original reader, because we have to realize the Bible is written for us. It's not written to us. It's written for us. It's for our good. 
It's for, but it's not written to us. It had an intended audience who were not modern, Western, post-enlightenment people in America. <laughs> They're these ancient people, and they had a very different world view. And so to grasp it, think about it this way. Israelites had more in common with Egyptians and Canaanites than they do us. It's kind of a weird thought, <laughs> right? So that's why to step into that world as best we can is, is to help us know, oh, that's what God was saying when this book was written to those people, but it's for us today. And Scripture comes alive. Don't you love that? <laughs> I think it's fantastic. It's absolutely phenomenal. And so when we worship Jesus, we're going we're gonna to sing a song here just in a second, Christ Magnified. And when we sing this song, and we're going to take communion too, I want you to think about this reality of these different pieces that inform who is Jesus? What is he like? He's, he's the cloud writer. He is the physical embodiment of Yahweh. He is the word of the Lord in physical form. He is the divine one. And so he is this one who, when we think of the angel of the Lord, that was the physical Jesus. I don't use the word incarnation. Incarnation happened once. when He actually took on human nature. But he did that, as the author of Hebrews says, that he might redeem many sons of God. And it, was, it meant us. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be talking about what does, what does Scripture teach with regard to what's, what does God have in store and plan for you for eternity? Because it might surprise you. <laughs> you have a job. You have a task in eternity. And it's way bigger than anything you've ever imagined, I would guess. <laughs>